All right, so welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church, everyone. Um, we hope that uh, you've enjoyed it so far and that the Lord has blessed you with the, with the teaching of our children and then the worship music as well. So um, before we get started, can I get uh, Mr. Char, are you in here? There you are. Can you open this up in a word of prayer? Amen. Thank you, sir. All right. So I'm glad to be here. We are going to continue our Bible study in the book of Philippians. And if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And we'll continue with our verse-by-verse teaching through Philippians. And today's texts are verses 15 through 17. Well, 18. I lied to you. We're going through verse 18. So... So, as I said, we continue our study. So, we remember that the Apostle Paul is changed to the, to the guards, Praetorian guards. You remember that? While he's in prison here in Rome. In verses 12 through 18, we see the progression of the gospel, even while Paul is imprisoned. He has joy and contentment that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And he has truly accepted the situation he's in, the scenario he's in, because he sees the greater picture. And that greater picture is the progression of the gospel, okay? Which is the most important thing, the highest treasure of all treasures, the gospel. He has preached to the whole Praetorian Guard and others around him. This scenario has given other believers confidence as well and courage to speak the word of God without fear. <clears throat> Later in Philippians chapter 4, we'll see that Paul draws his strength through Christ, no matter the circumstance. For this kind of joy is not circumstantial. Okay, We do not find our joy as Christians in our circumstance. This strength is also not a human strength, but this type of strength is a supernatural strength. Almost like we see with Samson. If you go back to the book of Judges, you don't have to go there, but chapter 15, verse 15, we see him uh, take, uh, we see uh, Samson where the Holy Spirit comes in him and he takes a stand, right? He strikes down anyone who opposes him while he is empowered by the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, there is an enemy of Christian contentment. Where there's good, there's always a copycat, there's bad, right? We see that. We see that with money. We see that with things that have value even here on earth that are not spiritual. So there is an enemy of Christian contentment, okay? And this is, of course, the devil himself, right? He does, <clears throat> he does what he can to tempt us and also to guilt us to drive us away from our contentment, right? If, we are out of our, uh, if we're out of the, the, uh, the, con- the umbrella of contentment, then we begin to doubt, we begin to worry, we begin to um, start um, allowing the flesh to 
distract us from God's true contentment. Contentment. And as I said just now, the flesh, there's a second enemy, and that is the flesh. We see in Proverbs 16.32 that we are to be spiritual warriors. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. Okay? So if you manage yourself, you are considered a higher spiritual warrior than even those who have captured cities. We are also called to put on the armor of God. As true soldiers of Christ, we are called to put on the armor of God. When we overcome sin and temptation, according to Proverbs, it is greater than, than overcoming any great battle of the past. If you think about the great battles of the past, overcoming sin is even greater than that. Okay? Our confidence in Christ is greater than any treasure out there. So we cannot lose it. We must treasure this contentment uh, in Christ. Okay? Very important. So our confidence is greater than any treasure out there. So now we come to our section of verses, verses 15 through 18. So for context, uh, we will read and then highlight a few points in the passages from last week's study. So again, you're probably already there, but uh, let's read Philippians <clears throat> chapter. Let's go from 12 to 18 to so kind of give us a refresher of last week. So now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but, from all, uh, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than uh, from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Amazing text. So, just a quick uh, recap. We'll kind of just go through the text. We'll look at verse 12, okay? We see here, verse 12, um, that his chains are divinely appointed. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He thought it negative, but now he says, you know what? Oh, no, this is what it was for, right? We see that God knows better, right? His next uh, section in verse 13, we see distinctly um, uh, uh, is productive, right? That his chains were productive. So that my chains in Christ had become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, and to everyone else, okay? So we see that his state, his chains are productive, okay? By uh, means of imprisonment. Now, verse 14, <clears throat> we have here, um, it's a new atmosphere, okay? We see a change here. And he says, and that most of the brothers have become confident. So because of his change, we see a change in the atmosphere of the gospel outside of the walls, Okay? They are confident in the Lord because of my change. And then in verse 14b, we see the change of the nature of those who are witnessing. Okay? Not only are they confident, but they are also uh, have courage to speak the word of God without fear. Right? So we see this change 
we see, I kind of call this passing the baton, right? The Philippians note was one, or epistle was one of the last epistles written. And you can see, you know, Paul is beginning to be weaned out of the, you know, the next stage of the gospel, right? Now the apostles have set the foundation and we are now uh, picked up the baton and carried it forward. So today's text, verses 15 through 18a, is, um, is blessing mixed with opposition, Okay, we'll see that. So what's interesting, though, is we're going we're gonna to unfold a little bit, you know, kind of what's going on here. But there's not a whole lot of information out there telling us what's going on. We're going to assume some things, but then I want to throw something at you, a challenge I want you to evaluate and maybe chew on it for the week and see if I'm crazy or not. But anyways, um, something for you to, to graze on for the week. So let's jump into our text. Verse 15. So some to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. So here we have two groups of brothers, okay? These are Christians. He calls them brothers, okay? Preaching Christ. One is doing it through envy and strife, and the others out of goodwill. But today we're going to focus on those who preach out of envy and strife more the other is quite normal to us, right, and does not require much explanation to preach the gospel, right, uh, with good with goodwill. We, we understand that as Christians, right? We are to preach the gospel with goodwill, and it's the, it's the correct Christian thing to do that should come natural to us. But the word phrase, goodwill, is translated eudokia and is used in Luke 2.14 where the angels are heralding the Savior's birth. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward all men. We see this in Luke 12.32, Jesus uses it. He says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we see this here. So we preach the gospel out of goodwill. John Phillips in his commentary says, so to preach the gospel out of goodwill then is to preach it out of a sincere desire for the well-being of others. But not all preachers in this time period of Paul's life were motivated in this manner or this way. As we see in our text that some preach Christ out of envy. Okay, What is envy? Well, MacArthur in his commentary says, Envy is wishing others did not have what they have and is closely related to jealousy which is wishing to have what someone else possesses. From the context, it seems likely that Paul's detractors were both envious and jealous of the apostles, okay? But why? Why were they jealous? Why were they envious? We don't know. We'll continue to look. He goes on to say they envied Paul's giftedness, his blessings, his intellect, his effectiveness in ministry, and perhaps especially his being highly respected and beloved in the church. They may even have envied, uh, envied his personal encounters with the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, like all those motivated by envy and jealousy, they considered the Apostle Paul to be a threat to their own prominence and influence in the church. End quote. So we see envy, right? Envy is a strong sin, at least to others. It's the, it's the trunk of many other branches of sin, in a sense. Okay, so these men are preaching God's word with envy towards um, Paul. Now, we see the word strife. This is a Greek word. uh, uh, The Greek word is 
uh, eddies, E-R-I-S, eddies, eddies, which refers to contention, especially with a spirit of hostility. As it is used here, it is frequently associated with envy and jealousy. So we see this connection between jealousy, I mean envy and strife, as well as with other sinful passions, okay, such as greed and malice. Envy leads to uh, competition, hostility, and conflict, okay? So we see that. So, in all reality, we do not know what is being said about the Apostle Paul here, okay? There are some assumptions, and I'll share those with you, okay? <clears throat> but we do know that Paul, this is not the first time that the Apostle Paul has been attacked. We see Paul was attacked by the Corinthian people, uh, by the Corinthians, uh, people arguing about uh, allegiance. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, okay? Some taught that Paul was in jail because of some secret sin that he had and that God was punishing him and had him in there. But we know that's not true because we saw that Paul finally recognized, ooh, that wasn't a word, <laughs> that uh, I almost built my water on my computer. But Paul uh, said that he was there for the progression of the gospel, okay? So that wasn't it. Then others taught that Paul did not have enough faith to get out there and could not tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Sounds like our modern day charismatic movement. But that was one of the things that were being taught. Another one was because they were free and Paul wasn't, made it seem like they had a better message and Paul was being disciplined by the Lord. Like something had happened to Paul and they felt that God was punishing him and that they were the next elite. They were desiring, I think, that leadership that Paul had, that respect, that, uh, that uh, apostleship in a sense. But as mentioned earlier, we truly don't know exactly, right? So these are these assumptions. I try to go back and see if we could find some uh, historical, maybe some uh, historians or um, his, uh, yeah, his, what do you call those guys? Um, those guys that document things during the, that time. Historians, right? I said it right, didn't I? Yeah, that guy right there. We couldn't find nothing, nothing on that. And so it's just an unknown, okay? Now, <clears throat> now, if we look at this through the lens of verse 12, let's go back and look at verse 12. It says right there that this was done for the progression of the gospel, right? I've mentioned that two or three times already. And I think the text has the answers within the text, okay? We don't have to dig too far. Verse 13 tells us that because of Paul's situation, that Christ was made known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. God used Paul to preach the gospel to his people. We see this pattern in the book of Acts where Paul is going one direction and, and God sends him another way just really quick because there's somebody there who needs to be saved. They get saved, he comes back out and he goes. We see the same thing here. God sent him to Rome, but God has never done with the work of salvation until he is done, right? We don't know that. But God will continue doing his work of salvation. And that's what we see Paul doing here. It doesn't matter if you're in jail, if you're in the workplace, if you're behind the pulpit, if you're sitting there where you're at. We are to preach the gospel until the Lord returns. That is our job as Christians, okay? <clears throat> now, so God used Paul to preach the gospel to his people. So this was no accident. We all know that God is sovereign and that salvation is his work. Now, I don't think that Paul is dealing with a heretical or salvific issue here with these, with these people, okay? There are some who say that maybe he was dealing with, uh, with Judaism, kind of like in, and we see in the book of Galatians. But I think Paul would have not let that slide. If you know the book of Galatians well, 
Paul choose out another apostle, which is Peter, and those in Galatia. Paul is not going to hold back, okay? Especially because that is a type of teaching that is another gospel. It's a teaching, another gospel that can lead you to hell, right? Faith, I mean, uh, salvation equals faithless works. It's not faithless works equals salvation, okay? It's backwards. So think about that. So Paul would have not let that slide. He would have called them out again, like I said, in the book of Galatians. So there's something else going on, okay? So Paul discussed this difference here in verses 16 and 17. So we don't know what's causing this, but we do know that verse 16, it says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. This group of people preached the gospel sincerely out of love, was to defend the gospel. There was no ill intention with this group. They carried on the preaching of the word in the streets while Paul preached in prison. Okay? That is our job today. We preach where we are. We preach where the Lord moves us. I've moved around four times with the company I work with, and every time I pray that the Lord does it and he places in a place where we continue preaching and training and teaching of the gospel, it's important. Looking for other men and women to sharpen me and my family, that's important for us. That's been very crucial to me and my children. So, <clears throat> again, I'm thankful to be here for that as well. I get that here, and thank you for that. Now, the selfish and envious preachers preach for the purpose of making Paul bitter, okay? They were trying to make Paul upset. But they did not do it out of a pure heart or proper intentions, okay? They had the right message, right? They were going after Paul to lift themselves up. They were trying to show that they were better, right? The message they preached was sound, but their character was not Christ-like. Okay, we see that even in today's Christianity, right? We have the proper message, but are we loving? Are we truthful? Okay, now that definition may be different between different people, but either way, as a Christian, you have to approach every scenario with those two things in mind. Am I being loving? Am I being firm? Right? You can cross the line either way, but every situation would demand more of the other depending on what's going on. <clears throat> this is an example of ministry being done in the flesh with these, with these preachers, mot- uh, uh, motivated by pride, envy, strife, jealousy, and greed. If ev- if, uh, <clears throat> if very, uh, it is very important as we serve the Lord that we too do not fall into the trap of trying to serve for the intentions of boasting our own flesh. Have you guys ever dealt with that, struggled with that? You do something and you're like, man, I try not to get attention for myself. I try to give it to God all the time. Right? Everybody? Maybe I'm the only guy. No, <laughs> no but sometimes that happens, right? We get tempted in your mind. But we're supposed to do it all to the glory of God. Okay? And we hold each other accountable for that. We all know where we're all weak, but one day we'll be perfect to Christ. So again, so it is very important that we serve the Lord, okay, that we do not do it with the intentions of boasting in our own flesh. A servant of God should always be humbled because Christ was was humbled on the cross, which is the greatest example of humility to mankind. Okay, he gave his own self. He gave his life for us. Paul also ignored them. 
he was really kind of passive with them. Paul could have really told them off, right? We'll go look at the book of Acts. Paul told a lot of people off, right? He, he, he made a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, um, well, he pushed back a lot. We saw that with the sorcerer, uh, Simon the sorcerer. And we see that with, uh, I think uh, Owen used the, the young lady who was, um, who was doing divination. And, you know, he got um, put away. I think that's what kicked off this whole scenario here. But either way, Paul was not afraid to speak up, okay? He had this confidence. But where did this confidence come from? We'll see in a little while, okay? Something just to think about. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, this made Paul happy, okay? This actually made Paul happy. If Paul did not call them out, then their message must have been really clear. It must have been really good, but their motives were wrong. So Paul was willing to let that go, okay, to be kind of passive with that. So church, remember, it's the message that saves, okay? This is something that, as a young believer, just blew my mind when I saw this. Uh, and you, maybe not you. Maybe you were a lot more mature than I was. But the message that saves... I mean, you can have an unbeliever who knows the gospel and shares it with somebody and those people can be saved because it's not about the messenger. It's the message that's alive. The messenger has no power. It's the message that has the power. We see this in Romans, what is it, uh, 116? Uh, what is the power of God um, unto salvation, right? The gospel is. So again, we see that. We see that there. It's the message, not the messenger. I've seen or heard of, I haven't seen this, but I've heard of preachers uh, who have been preaching for many years. And I heard of one preacher one time in the pulpit said, guys, I think I just got saved last week. And he gave his testimony on why he thought that. But he continued to preach. I mean, I don't know if I would have, you know, I don't know what we would have done, but yeah. <laughs> but I've seen that. I've heard of that. These moments are true. So again, just because you know doesn't mean you're saved. Has the message been real to you? Have you have a true relationship with Jesus Christ or do you just have a knowledge of Jesus Christ? So make sure you understand the difference. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to test ourselves, right? To see if we are in the faith unless we fail the test, right? That's very, very important. My mentor beat that text into my mind, so I feel I live like I'm questioning my salvation all the time because of that. But again, remember, it's very, very important. The message is what's important. So Paul is looking at, looking at it from the message. The message is clear. The messengers have some issues, but the message is going to move on. The gospel will progress, and that's his focus here. Now, if we look at verse 18, we see that Paul does dismiss the difference. It's like, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul here refuses to be negative about the situation. Okay, Christ is being preached by both groups. But what's interesting here is that Paul is not feeling sorry for himself or seeking sympathy from anybody because of this. Rather, he is filled with the joy of the Lord. He overlooked their mean spirit, and he finds joy in that, okay? He finds joy in that. I have this saying that I say at work sometimes with the guys, and they tell me that they're, they were talking about me. I said, well, that's good. That means you're leaving the rest of my team alone. They kind of start laughing, but 
in all reality, I'd prefer them talking about me so that my people can continue to do their work and they're not distracted with what's going on, right? So the Apostle Paul, I believe, is having the same mentality here. Let them talk about me, right? But leave my, the other people alone. Leave the good ones alone and I'll deal with that. Let them continue preaching the truth. Let them come after me. But again, he overlooked their mean spirit. Now, what is it that makes Paul so confident, right? I keep saying that. All right? So have you, have you guys heard me say in the past, I've said it probably multiple times, but what I've said is that theology will determine how you live your life, okay? Your theology will determine how you live your life. I've been watching debates on the internet a little bit about end times, and um, there are some end time positions that will uh, cause some of us to, to approach our worldview from this perspective or that perspective or this perspective. And it's very interesting. And you see the same thing with other theological or biblical uh, doctrine um, in the Bible. And it's just so interesting. So I truly believe that your theology will determine how you live your life. So remember that the Philippians, the Philippian epistle here is the last epistle Paul writes outside of Timothy and Titus, which are considered uh, letters to um, the leadership, right? The last letter to a church, and then he ends it with joy. It's almost like he's, he's tying it up, and he's like, this is the book of joy. I'm done. The ministry is complete to the churches. He does send out to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, um, but those are to uh, the leaders of the church, right? So how does Paul make it through this situation? So I believe that this, I mean, that his theology is so rich. And, and here's what I mean by talking about the gospel of salvation, being preached for salvation, um, and why it, I believe it's so rich. You know, we just got through going through the book of, uh, I mean, the, the epistle of John, right? First John, we went through First John, and we learned about children and fathers and young men. Let's, let's go back there real quick. Let's go to First John Chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And I believe that wherever, I mean, how, uh, wherever you fit into these texts will determine how you handle the things of the world, the temptations, and the flesh. First John, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is a very important passage. I go to it quite a bit, 1 John 2, 12 through 14. So he says, I am writing to you, little children. Now notice the little children because your sins have been forgiven you. This is an introduction, okay? You just learned that your sins have been forgiven. You had just accepted the cross and what is done for you, Christ's work, the gospel. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who has been from the beginning. This is back... Genesis time, okay? I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You are now confident in who you are. You know who Christ is. You know about your relationship, but there's still room to grow, okay? I have written to you, children, because you have known the Father. Now you know that you are no, you are no longer just a creature, but you are now adopted into Christ. You are adopted by God, and you are now you know, you know your position, right? So you were, <clears throat> you were, uh, your sins have been forgiven in verse 12 and to verse 13 because you have known the Father. 
I have written to you fathers because you have known him who has been from the beginning. Again, we see this from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Okay? This is somebody who's growing and learning and maturing and applying it and they're wanting to conquer every debate that they see out there, right? You know, you guys have been there before, right? Kind of like a bull in a, in a, in a, in a closet with a, what do they call it? A bull in a china cabinet? Yeah. I don't think we use china cabinets much anymore. But anyways, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. My point is, is that depending where you are and these three points of maturity in your life is going to determine how you handle sin and temptation um, from both Satan and the flesh. Okay? And here's what I mean by that. So, so what I believe we see here, it's not the matter of how, of why they were attacking Paul, and it's not the matter on how Paul dealt with it. The issue is that Paul dealt with it because of this. So what I see here is a theological maturity, okay? I see Paul as a father here, okay? Salvation, like I mentioned earlier, is at the level of a child, Okay, you don't know all the truth yet. You're still learning. You're still growing. Somebody comes with you with a weird doctrine or teaching, you may or may not believe it, but uh, you know you're going to grow into that. You're going to um, evaluate it. So the message being preached is the gospel, which is preached for salvation. Understand that this section of passages we're talking about the basic level entry of preaching the gospel for salvation. Okay, so, but Paul is approaching it from a different perspective because he has no choice. His mind is programmed this way. Who was Paul trained and taught by? Christ himself. We see this in Galatians chapter 1. Christ was taught and trained by Christ himself. We see a theological maturity here. So after that, we'll need to grow and advance in our knowledge of God, right, which, which creates a deeper theology. Now, I believe Paul was not phased with this group of negative Nancy's, I called them, right, because of his theology. But preaching Christ crucif- uh, crucified is only one small point of the rest of God's truth, okay? So this is just the entry level of Christ and what he did. Once you get the, the salvation message, oh, man, it just it goes upwards. It's an upside-down pyramid, right? It escalates, and, and the amount of information and the application of who Christ is and what he's done is endless, <clears throat> but at this point, Paul has already given us or influenced others to write letters. Oh, what am I? I don't know why I wrote that. Okay, but so anyways, but what is it? So what is it that's in Paul's mind about Christ? Okay, what is the Christology of Paul? What is it that he knows about Christ? Why is it that something like this is just so simple to him? And this is something we should all strive to do. So, so, what, so what Paul understands about Christ, I believe, is what's holding him firm to his current status. And that's why we don't need to know the rest of it. That's why we don't need to know why they're attacking him and things like that. It doesn't matter because the reason why he's standing firm is because what he knows about Christ, he has written the final letter to the last church from a general perspective, and now here he is, not a big deal. What Paul believes about Christ, 
I believe, will teach why he is so confident and full of joy. His life was Christ-saturated. And here we go. So, one of the things is the centrality of Christ, okay? And I'm not going to go through every doctrine, but if you, if you take all of Paul's writings and you take every time he, he, he talks about Christ, he mentions Christ, he, he approaches Christ, there is a lot there. Paul wrote 67% of the New Testament. He influenced Luke. He influenced which wrote uh, Luke and Acts. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, we got Timothy there. So we see Paul influence a lot of the New Testament. But I'm only talking about the epistles of Paul. Okay? So in Paul's greatest letter, the epistle to the Romans, he opens up in verse 3 of chapter 1 with the gospel centered on the Son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25, the gospel focuses on the cross of Christ uh, and on Christ crucified. We also see in 1 Corinthians 1, 4-8 that God's grace is bestowed upon His people in Christ Jesus so that every gift they have is due to Christ. Okay, We see this. I'll read it to you. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in Him in all word and all knowledge even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you and so that you are not lacking in any gift eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saturated with Christ. And this is going to be kind of more of a study going back and forth, just kind of giving you some quick illustration, quick points on this. Again, this is Christ's centrality, okay? This is the centrality of Christ uh, in Paul's writings. In verse 9 of, of this same text, if you go down uh, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1.9, in verse 9, salvation is described as fellowship with Jesus Christ as Lord. Everything Paul did was Christ-centered, okay? And uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Jesus Christ was always Paul's target. Christ is the second Adam, and because of that, he brought in the free grace, I mean, the free gift of grace, justification in life. Christ now reigns in our lives. Christ has made us righteous. And now we have a, we have a hope in Christ for a future resurrection. All these Christological themes were introduced to us by Paul. Okay, this is only a flake again of Paul's centrality of Christ. In Colossians, I mean, I'm sorry, in Romans 13, 14, we are called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ by Paul. In Colossians 3, 9, believers are to put off the old self and put on the new person found in Christ. You see this in Colossians 3, 11, Paul says, Christ is all. Paul has called us to put on Christ. We are to imitate him. But only, this is talking about Paul, only in so far as he imitates Christ. Okay, we've seen that. <clears throat> in the life we live, Paul in Philippians 1.27 tells us to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 1.10, we are to walk worthy of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we are to live in a way that is worthy to God. Then we see that Paul has called men, pay attention, married men, as Paul has called the husband in Ephesians to model the sacrificial love of Christ in our relationships with our wives so that we are to nourish and cherish our wives 
as Christ does the church. Do we see this picture? Paul is saturated with Christ. Paul has called us in 2 Corinthians to take every thought captive to obey Christ when we sin against Christ. Okay? As believers, when we are saved, we are spiritually baptized into Christ. We are now Christ's members, limbs, and we speak for him. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Paul tells us that we are slaves to Christ. You've heard me mention that multiple times. Christians should live as slaves and be an example to one another because we are called to serve who? Christ. Right? We are to serve Christ. So Timothy stands, Timothy stands out to, to all because he does not seek to live for his own interests, but for the interests of Christ. So Paul worries how we live our lives. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. We'll, we'll look at this in our next chapter. Also in Philippians chapter 2, uh, we talked, uh, we've talked about Epaphroditus. But Epaphroditus in 2.30 deserves honor because he endangers his life for the sake of Christ's work. Okay? So we see this saturation in the mind and teachings of Paul. It's almost as if everything he writes is Christological, right? It all points to Christ. The preeminence of Christ impresses itself upon us in a variety of ways. The church is the body of Christ. The gifts given to believers stem from Christ. New life, when Christ shines on those who uh, reside in darkness, which was some of us, right, at one point, or all of us who claim to be saved. Now, a changed life bearing the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Paul looks back at his life with no regrets because there's nothing he would change because he said it was all done for the sake of Christ. You see this. Paul has no issues with these men that are saying some minor things. Paul is ready to sacrifice everything else in his life, even, uh, even considers it all to be dung, he uses, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's what he says. Okay, and that's just the centrality of Christ. But there are other things about Jesus Christ that Paul has introduced us to, that Paul has given us these foundations. And here they are. It says church. <clears throat> oh, yeah, so church. This, uh, this was just, again, like I said, a basic presentation of Paul. So we still have the teachings of being in Christ. You've seen that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, right? There's so much there to unpack, and that is from Paul. Paul's Christology and his prayers, if you go and study his prayers, you see the way he, pray, he prays to Christ. You see Paul's teachings on Jesus the Messiah <clears throat> is different. Paul's teaching on Jesus' humanity is also different than, some of the, than John. Paul's application of the word uh, Savior to both Jesus and the Father is unique as well. Paul's presentation on Jesus as the Son of God is different and unique. Paul's presentation on the Lordship of Christ, he brought that to us. Paul's approach on the Trinity is also unique. He approaches it very differently, very, um, um, I don't know, it's just, it's just different. Um, he, he combines a, you know, they call it a binary and a tertiary um, perspective, and it's really cool the way he does it. But anyways, Paul's teaching also on Jesus as God is different from the others. But Paul brought this all to us, and all these things are ingrained and woven in almost every word that Paul preaches in all his epistles. So again, I'm almost done here. As I mentioned earlier, this epistle was one of Paul's last one to write. 
All of what we just mentioned had already been pinned by Paul. All these teachings that I just talked about had been pinned before Philippians. So it's not like Paul got new revelation and you know he wrote Philippians, got all this new revelation about Christ, and we're done. No, Paul got all this information. He's writing Philippians down. So you can see these guys, Paul was a mature man. His theology, his Christology was solid. They were not going to move him. <clears throat> so again, there is no way that these preachers are going to move Paul from his position. He was mature enough to look at the big picture, and that was to allow the gospel to progress. So the challenge to us, right, the challenge I give to us as a church is that we too are to saturate our mind on the same theological meat that Paul has in his mind. He pinned it down for us. We can study it. We can learn it. We can saturate our minds in it. Okay? Our goal is to be mature like fathers, not children, right? Mature as fathers so that when Satan tries to tempt us or when the flesh begins to deceive us, we have the mind of Christ and can overcome these traps. Like Paul, we can do the same, right? We need to study the word with purpose and in depth. Don't be satisfied with remaining as children of the word, right? If you're satisfied with that, then come out on Wednesday evenings. We have the children of the word and come out and hang out with them, right? And you can learn the entry-level things of what we're teaching our children. And in fact, they're probably a lot more aggressive and a lot more deep than most Christians out there. So again, don't be satisfied with remaining a child of the word, okay? So let's end with this text. Very, very important Open your Bibles, 2 Timothy. If you don't have this underlined, you need to have it underlined. We've gone to it multiple times. But if you don't have God's Word saturated in your mind, you cannot defend yourself and be stable. Or you can, maybe you don't need to defend yourself, but if there's some stability to the truth of God in your mind, then that's what you need. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And why? So that the man of God may be equipped, equipped having been thoroughly equipped for every good work, okay? Even the defense of the mind, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word, Lord. I just thank you for um, just the example, Lord, that Paul set. And um, I know it was hard, Lord, to detract from the distractions of um, why he did what he did and, and things like that. And I appreciate, Lord, the other approach that you came, that you gave to me, Lord. And that, uh, we got to see here, Lord, that, again, the, the mind, the theological perspective, Lord, the the truths that are saturated in Paul's mind, Lord, should be the way we approach all things. And that what that does, Lord, it allows us to have discernment. It allows us to evaluate all situations and realize what's truly important in the big picture, Lord. And I pray that we are never a stumbling block to another believer. I pray that we are to grow, mature, and be examples to all because Christ is in us and because Christ is the ultimate example, Lord. Help us to be like Him. Help us to grow into Him, to become fathers and not be satisfied with children or even young men, Lord. Help us to grow, to be mature, so that way we can glorify you and always have an answer 
uh, for those who ask of us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.